invite you to open a Bible if you have one, whether hard copy or on a phone or tablet, whatever it may be, to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. We finished looking at the birth of the king last week after having uh, Christmas and then 40 days of prayer and then came back to it. Uh, but today we start a new series in, within the book of Matthew. The next four weeks we'll be looking at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And so I've kind of titled this, It Begins, these next four messages. And today, looking at... John the Baptist's ministry with this theme of prepare the way. I invite you to follow along. I want to read for us the passage we'll be looking at together as uh, we prepare for communion and time in his presence in that way. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with, or some translations will say, in water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. May the Lord add his blessing this morning to the reading of his word. You know, God, I believe, is stirring a new thing in our land. Almost a month ago now, on February 8th, following a chapel service at Asbury University, a revival started that lasted a couple weeks of just continuous meeting. Imagine a couple weeks of round-the-clock worship and prayer and spontaneous words being given and sermons and repentance and callings being given and people answering the call who will go for me? Here am I, Lord, send me. And people being set free of addictions and demonic oppression. People being saved. Amazing time. Churches have been touched as well as even other universities have been touched as well. And 
I've sensed little bits of some of these things happening, even in our time of worship this morning, sensing his presence and his goodness and that, that flame, that spark of what God wants to do in the midst of a revival work. It's been interesting as I talk to other pastor friends, they're sensing this kind of stirring. Some are seeing it in churches, in their own churches, of a new fresh work that God is doing. All this, interestingly enough, has coincided with the release of a movie. You may have seen it or heard of it called The Jesus Revolution. I found out that that movie that just came out shortly after, which chronicles the Jesus movement, Jesus people in the 60s and 70s and what God did in in bringing hippies to Christ and set free from addiction and all those kinds of things, coincided with this shortly after that, the Asbury, the the movie came out, and what I didn't know is that that movie was slated to come out seven years ago. But for things out of their own control, things stopped the movie from coming out, and now is the time. And I recognize there are things, movies have messiness attached to it, and there's questions and all those kinds of things, but the timing of it, could it be that God wants to do something again in our land that he did in the 60s and 70s? I believe he wants to. I believe he wants to. The question is, are we ready for it? The question is, are we looking for it? Because whenever a move of God happens, there is a preparation work that precedes it. John the Baptist was used by God to prepare the way for Jesus. This morning, I want us to look for a few moments at what we might need to do to position ourselves to fully embrace his movement. I do want to just warn you that some of what I will share this morning may not be easy to hear, but I do believe it's what God wants us to hear and that it is necessary for us to hear. And so this morning I share it with a sense of urgency, I believe a little bit of a holy fear. I hope you sense love in a pastor's heart as I share this this morning. So let's dive in together. There are sermon notes, there'll be some slides on the screen, you can fill them in. But we want to look at four things that we need to do this morning to position ourselves for preparing what God, to be prepared for what God may want to do in our midst. The first is this. To position ourselves, we must hear the message. To position ourselves, we must hear the message. Again, in verses 1 and 2, John the Baptist comes, he's preaching in the desert of Judea, and his message is very simple. Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven, another synonym for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is near. Matthew's account begins with John the Baptist for the be preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus. The message from the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist, is simple. It's spoken to Israel. It's not spoken to Gentiles. It's not spoken to anyone outside of God's chosen people, Israel. It is prepare the way. The message was simple, Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
That idea in the original language, near, means at hand or in close proximity. Sometimes when we think of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God being near, we think about the time of the kingdom of heaven. And certainly the fullness of the kingdom of heaven when Jesus returns will be at hand and and there will be the fullness of the kingdom being expressed as Jesus comes and makes all things that are wrong right. And so sometimes when we hear Jesus or we hear John's message, Jesus preached it as well, that it was that we're thinking about a time frame, that the kingdom of God is it's near, it's coming, the time is coming, but that's not what John is talking about. He is saying the kingdom of God is around you, it's close at hand, it's right in front of front of you, it's a spatial term. Recently we were on a family trip and there was a swimming pool in the hotel that we were staying at. And it was in the basement. And so because it was in the basement, no matter, even though there was a heater for that pool, that water was cold. And Julian, anytime we had free time, he was getting in a swimming suit and he was jumping in that pool. And as soon as I got there, he said, Dad, we got to get in the pool. Dad, come in, come on in. And so I had heard the water was cold, but I put my suit on and I dipped my toe in and whoa, it was cold. I I want my swimming water to be bath water. Anyone with me? Yeah, okay, amen. We can get a real big amen on that one. Cold is not my idea of fun when it comes to swimming. But Julian is in there and he is, come on, dad, get in. Come on in, come on in. The water's not cold. The water's nice. The invitation that Julian had for me is the same invitation that John had for the people. Come on in. Repent. Turn from the things that have been distracting you. Turn from the ways that you have been living. Turn from the things that have had your focus because there's a new thing coming. The kingdom is near. It is at hand. It's close by. Come on in. Jump in. Stop being on the edge. Stop saying it's too cold. Stop saying I've got other things to do. Stop saying all your excuses. Stop looking to all the other things. Repent and jump in. The kingdom is here. Whenever there's a fresh work of God, a fresh expression even of the kingdom of God, it requires us to leave the things that have defined it behind and to jump into the new thing. The kingdom of heaven is near. It is at hand. Repent for it. That's the message that John had for the people, and I believe it's the message that Jesus has for us today. Repent. There's a fresh expression of the movement of the kingdom at hand. Come in. To position ourselves, we hear the message, but... To position ourselves, secondly, we confront our boxes. Verses three through four, it says, This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was wild locusts and honey. And then verse seven, when he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Standing in stark contrast to one another is John and the Pharisees and Sadducees. John, the one spoken of 
by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40, who was also spoken of in Malachi as the one coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah, is there, the cousin of Jesus, calling the people of God to repentance. It was a time that they would have understood their time of suffering was over. They had paid their time for the sins that they had committed, that it took them off into captivity. It was time. The new work was about to take place. A voice of one calling John is the messenger in the spirit and the power of Elijah to prepare the way for the Lord. And he was a little bit different. Living in the desert, wearing camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey. He's probably the kind of guy that we looked at him, we would have thought, something's not right with that man. But he was preparing the way for the Lord. And he stood in stark contrast to these two groups of people. He stood in stark contrast to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the middle class. They were religious. They were the source of the rabbis, the teachers of the people. They believed strongly in the inspiration of the scriptures and the authority that the scriptures had for life and practice. They also believed that the applications that they got for how to apply the scriptures, the Old Testament, that they were authoritative as well. They had a, an, an appreciation for oral tradition in the application of the law. They believed in angels. They believed in demons. They believed in the supernatural that God could break into the lives of human beings and into our human world and do the miraculous. They had a very high view of holiness and of living a pure life free from sin. And they believed that there would one day be a resurrection of the dead, a bodily resurrection. Sometimes the Pharisees get a bad rap. A lot of times they get a bad rap. They oppose John, they oppose Jesus. But I want us to understand something. We hold to basically everything that the Pharisees hold to. That's a hard one for us to hear sometimes. We, do we believe in the authority of Scripture? Do we believe in the inspiration of Scripture? Do we believe in angels and demons? Do we believe that God will break through in the miraculous ways? Do we believe that we should be living a holy and pure life set apart to God and free from sin? Do we believe that there's going to be a resurrection of our physical bodies in which we will be glorified one day? Do we believe that? I don't know. Maybe we do. Maybe we don't. Are, they, are these things we believe? Yeah. So we're not that far off from the Pharisees. Just that we understand these things. And there's this second group, the Sadducees. They were the religious faction of the Sanhedrin or the political rule. They were wealthy they were the powerful, and they were the group from which almost all of the high priests came. They believed in Old Testament, that it was the ultimate authority, and they, unlike the Pharisees, rejected oral tradition. They were literalists. This is what it says is what it says. They believed strongly in free will. 
And they did not believe that God would break into this world, nor that he cared about what went on. They simply believed that they were the ones who were left to handle things. God was off distant. They rejected the role of the supernatural, didn't believe in angels or demons, and did not believe that there would be a resurrection of the dead. These two groups did not like each other, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But what they did understand was that John, and ultimately Jesus, was not, they were not good. What's the saying? The enemy of my enemy is my, do you know the end? Friend. <laughs> the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So the Pharisees would say to the Sadducees, John's my enemy. He's your enemy. Let's team up together. The Sadducees would say to the Pharisees, we don't, Jesus is your enemy. He's our enemy. Let's tag up. Let, let's meet together. And so you have these two dichotomies of people. You have John and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They didn't like John at all. Why? Because they had boxes. I listed all those things that those groups believed. And many of those things, especially the Pharisees, there was nothing wrong with the things that they believed. But their issue became, their box became bigger than the worship of God. They became beholden to, focused upon the box, the system of convictions, the systems of beliefs that they held so tightly that those things became higher than the worship of God. Friends, you and I, as human beings, are no different than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We all have strongly held convictions. I have strongly held convictions. If you have strongly held convictions that you think are right, raise your hand. There is not a human being probably on the face of this earth that does not have strongly held convictions in one way, shape, or form. Where we can get in trouble and where we need to confront is when those strongly held convictions become what we focus on more than the presence of Jesus. So this is where I said it may not be easy to hear. There was a cultural anthropologist and missionary by the name of Paul Hebert who came up with this idea of bounded set, and then we'll look in a moment, centered set. It's been adapted to understand how churches and how we as believers can sometimes live. That there are, in this idea, in cultures all around the world, and every church has its own culture. Did you know that? Every church family has its own culture. And so there are things that you do or you don't do that make you in. There are sometimes spoken 
other times unspoken, that just everyone knows or you begin to learn in that church culture, we're just going to apply it to us, that there are things that you do and things that you don't do. And if you do the things that you're supposed to do and don't do the things that you're not supposed to do, guess what you get to be? In. You're a part of it. But if you don't do something that you're supposed to do, or you do something that you're not supposed to do, guess where you end up? Out. Does this make sense? Can you kind of see how this works? And so here's where I see, as a church culture, as I've lived among you and loved being with you and been loved by you and interacted with you, over these last six and a half years, here's what I kind of see as what makes you in and what makes you out. Let me say first that this box, if I were to say, what is the dividing line? What is the dividing line on this? I believe it would be this. The line between in and out is standing for biblical morality, biblical justice, and biblical righteousness. Let me ask, is there anything wrong with biblical morality, biblical justice, and biblical righteousness? Is there anything wrong with any of those? No. We as believers should possess those. But what happens is, that can easily become the dividing line and the thing that we make ourselves about. As I listen to conversations, as I sit in prayer meetings or small groups, the things that come up center around biblical morality, biblical justice, and biblical righteousness in taking a stand for these things. And so in order to accomplish that, what means, what happens to stay in here, these are the things that end up culturally and not everybody falls into all of these things. This is just like if I would diagnose the larger scale. These are the things that allow that line to be built. Is that we are a people to be in who value truth, are Bible-believing, are conservative, evangelical, Republican, who understand that tradition, there is a way that you do it and a way that you don't. That worship looks this way. That dress looks this way. This is what it means to be in. Now, not everyone's going to say, yeah, that's me. But as I listen to the culture of our church family, those are realities that I hear over and over and over again. Who are the people on the out? What means and what are you, another way to maybe um, explain this is what are we standing against? Well, I would say as I listen, we stand against a combination of Democrat liberal, left, progressive, those who push homosexuality, transgenderism, 
Marxism, wokeism, all of those things, all those trigger words. I know I just said every word that can set a room on fire. But it's what I hear. It's what I hear as I listen. And the things we talk about are usually the things that we do what with, that we hold to most tightly. Now, I fully believe that there are rights and wrongs. We hold to a biblical definition of sexuality and marriage between a man and a woman for sexuality. We see that just the the pain and the destruction that transgenderism and all these things cause. And so we're not saying, oh, these are, these are okay. We're just saying these are the things that we fight against. They stand against. These are the things that we build our box on. What's the alternative? The alternative is the centered set. Who's the focus in the centered set? Is it a box? Is it an agreed upon list of beliefs or convictions? Who's the center? Jesus. Jesus. Everyone then is moving towards Jesus. We worship today hungering after his presence, longing for his presence. More than a box, we want Jesus. And so there are going to be different people in different places. You may say, boy, I'm, I'm really focused on Jesus, and you're running towards him. And you may say, oh, I, I'm focused on Jesus, but I'm not as far as that person. It doesn't matter where that person is. Who matters? Jesus. This person may be saying, oh, I'm not as far as that person or that person, but who matters? Jesus. And this person, they may not even know what they think of Jesus yet. They may not have even received Jesus, but they're saying, you know what? I don't know that I really like a box, but you know who I really want to get to know and figure out? I want to understand Jesus. And so there are people who are not yet followers and there are people who are more mature and people who are newer in their journey, but everybody is running towards Jesus. And we don't serve the box. We can still hold our convictions. We can still say, yes, I believe this is right. But it's not the thing that makes people in or out. We don't worship the box. We don't worship our convictions and our beliefs. We worship Jesus. This is where we are going. We were never called to a set of beliefs. We were called to a person. We were not called to a box. We were called to a person. Now we'll still have beliefs. We'll still have convictions. But they're not going to be bigger than Jesus. 
to position ourselves third. We need to confront our boxes. And there may be other boxes that you identify that the Lord puts on your heart, but that's, I believe, our culture that we need to confront. What do we do with it? Three things. Confess, repent, and produce fruit. Confess. The people came confessing in verses 5 through 6. The people went out to him, to John from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Confession is the act of acknowledging and agreeing that God is right and I am wrong. It is a word that is spoken. It is a confession with my mouth. God is right, and in this area of my, my life, I am wrong. That's confession. It's just simply acknowledging and agreeing that God's right and I'm wrong. And it's verbalized. They did something additional. Because the message was repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's not just we can say all day long, God's right and I'm wrong. But if I continue to live according to what I say I'm wrong in and God is right, I haven't repented. Repented, Repentance simply means that I now put action and I change the way I'm behaving, the change the way I'm living, change the things I'm doing to align with what I just confessed. And so... If I have not been reading my Bible or worshiping the Lord the way he is calling me to, I confess, Lord, I have not been prioritizing worship the way you have been putting it on my heart. And I acknowledge that you're right and I'm wrong in this area. And now what am I going to do? I need to repent. So that may mean I'm putting my phone aside. That may mean I'm not being on TV. That may mean I'm not... I'm not going to do this activity or that activity. I'm going to put those things aside that become distractions and I am going to worship. I'm changing my behavior. That's repentance. But there was something that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not doing as well. Because John tells them specifically in verse 8 through 10, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That there would be results that would come from their changes. And he says, do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children. In other words, don't hold on to your privileged status. Don't take your reality that God has chosen you as a people. Don't hold on to that. It's about confession, repentance, and producing fruit that will show that you are a child of the king. And he tells them, the ax is at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce fruit, good fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Producing fruit is the result of turning. And Battery died. So what does fruit look like? I invite you to turn quickly to the book of Galatians, to Galatians chapter 5. You're in Matthew, you're going to work your way back. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, then two Corinthian letters, First and Second Corinthians, then Galatians. First small book, 
Galatians chapter 5. I want to walk us through quickly because this is important. What does fruit look like? And I hope that you're able to see what the fruit of the box looks like compared to the fruit of the Spirit. So in Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about a war that goes on. And he says in verse 16, Galatians 5 verse 16, he says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature or the flesh. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. This is what John was calling them out of. Don't live according to those desires. Don't live according to the boxes. Don't live according to the things that you want to do. Live according to the Spirit. And then he breaks down what the two look like. In verse 19, he says, The acts of the sinful nature or the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. What does it look like? What do these look like in a place where there is the box? What does this look like when the box is here? Well, I would say in our culture, because we are so against the sexual things, the sexual things are done in the mind, in hiding, and in secret. We're against all the stuff on the outside. So anything where the acts of the flesh may come against us in our own temptation, in our own flesh, we do it secretly or we just joke about it. We hide it. It's not lived out. It begins to really hit hard at what it looks like with the box in the next two. Verse 20, idolatry, and witchcraft. When the box is here, the box becomes the focus. And when the box is the focus, you know what that's called? Idolatry. We can take good things, right things, put them in boxes, make them bigger than Jesus, and they are an idol. The second commandment is have no other gods before me, no other idols before me. Do not worship a created image. And sometimes we think, oh, that was the thing they did. Those were stone, and those were things that they created. Our ideas, our convictions, our beliefs, the things that we stand for can easily become idols. And it's closely linked. Paul links it to witchcraft for this reason. Witchcraft, we think of like occult stuff and Ouija boards and, you know, seances and Wiccan and all that kind of stuff. That's what we think of witchcraft. Witchcraft, the sin of witchcraft at its base is control. It is control. And you know why? Because all of this stuff out here that we stand against with biblical morality and biblical justice and biblical righteousness, you know why they're all, all that is? Is because all of this freaks us out. We are scared to death by it. And so we build up this thing and we turn all of our beliefs into boxes and idols and we stand against this because we are trying to control the world. Friends, the world is not a safe place. I hope you realize that. 
Jesus never promised the world would be a safe place. The way that it, the way that we are trying to make it safe is by building boxes and controlling and standing. There's only one person who can protect us and can help us to be safe. And who is it? Jesus. Jesus. The next set, we see what happens when we have a box like this. These things get produced. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Does that not describe to a T what happens when you have in and out? There will be hatred. There will be discord. There will be jealousy. There will be fits of rage. There will be selfish ambition. There will be dissensions. There will be factions. There will be envy. Those get produced when we worship the box. And then he closes with drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Repent, repent. But the fruit of the Spirit is the, the, the other side. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its desires. These are the things that get produced by the Spirit. And they are in direct opposition to what gets produced in the bounded set. Confess, repent, and produce fruit. Friends, in a genuine revival, two things will happen. There will be this focus on Jesus. There will be this focus on Jesus. But in a genuine revival, there will also be people who are on the out that will come in. And if we are living in a box like this, those that Jesus wants to bring that are on the out will never want to come in. And in fact, they will not be able to come in when they first come. This is why it's important for our own worship and purity before the Lord, but also for those that he wants to bring to himself. So lastly, and then we'll wrap this up. The fourth thing to do to position ourselves is to submit to the Holy Spirit and fire. Verses 11, or the, the end of the passage there, verses 11 through 12. 
John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me there's going to come one more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He'll clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John pointed to the one who would come after him, Jesus, the Messiah. John baptized with water, but Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, which was a clear reference that we see now to Pentecost. See, the Holy Spirit fills and controls a submitted person producing the fruit of the Spirit. I don't produce, you don't produce the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit. The fire of God comes to bring judgment on the unrepentant, but it also comes to bring judgment on our own sin. And the fire of God burns our own sin because as Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. So let's submit ourselves to the work of the Spirit. As we repent, as we confess, as we produce fruit, the box gets burned up. The Spirit controls as we're running towards Jesus. We can't run towards Jesus and not have the Spirit be poured out upon us. The two go hand in hand. But the Spirit will not be able to be poured out upon us if we are living according to the box. So, friends, let's be people who allow the Spirit of God to come. And let's be people who are willing to burn the boxes. Sometimes we need to see what we hold on to tight going up in flames. Friends, we all have those. As we submit to the Spirit, there will be things that will not last. But what we get is so much better. It's so much better. We're going to conclude our service this morning with communion, but in a different way. We're going to have here at the front and both sides the bread and the cup as well as in the overflow back by the um, fireplace back there, the bread and the cup. And when you are ready, go to be served at those stations. We're reminded that on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. And after supper, he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples 
He said, this cup represents the new covenant that is in my blood. As often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you declare my death until I come. It's a deeply held belief, but it points to something bigger. It points to a person. It points to Jesus. And we come to Jesus. We remember Jesus and his work on the cross. We celebrate Jesus. It's about him. It's about him. And so we're going to begin by singing in Christ alone just to declare the sufficiency of the cross and the sufficiency of Jesus. And then as you are ready during that time, you may come to be served. We're going to continue in some worship after that, and we're not going to have a clear ending to the service today. I want to bless you in a moment so that when you are free, the Lord has freed you in this time of worship, that you would just be free to go. I ask that you would go at least from the space where others are quietly so that others may worship. But we want to just spend some time in the presence of the one who pours out his spirit and who burns up our boxes and whose presence we long for. And so Jesus, we do honor you. We thank you. We worship you. Meet us in these moments as we celebrate and remember your death and your resurrection as we encounter you, Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, the worthy one, the glorious one, the holy one. Meet us in these moments. Bring us to places of confession, repentance, Allow us to examine the fruit of our lives as well. We trust you, Jesus. You're good.